And we say good morning. Good morning. It is a good morning, isn't it? Always is when we meet together, but uh, hey, when you have sunshine and it's bright and blue skies out there, it's like uh, it's kind of like the spring after a long winter. I don't know if we're in the spring yet or not, but um, I'm counting that we are. <laughs> anyway, it's great to be here. It really is. What a joy. And uh, we uh, are starting a new section today here in Corinthians as we've been going through this for uh, quite some length of time. And uh, there are actually 16 chapters to Corinthians, so we're not done yet. Uh, but this is a new section, and this division is going to be from chapters 12 through 14. And it's basically one topic. It's dealing with spiritual gifts. That controversial topic that we have in the church today that's caused so many splits and such, and it, and it shouldn't, but I... I uh, Hope and pray as we go through this, as we take our time, and we go verse by verse, word by word, uh, just trying to get the real thought here of what Paul was saying to these Corinthians, and uh, then uh, apply that from there. Anyway, it'll sound like a lot of teaching today, um, because it kind of is. Uh, There's going to be a background that we're going to put forth for the rest of this section, and I only have on your outlines, which uh, really are found in your bulletin this time, because of my mistake, and not Zach. Zach uh, gets to take time off now where he can sit uh, regularly and not worry about having to run that. But I told him last night, don't worry about it. I, I didn't uh, send the outline to him like I normally do. I sent everything else, but not that. And I said, don't worry about it. I have it in the bulletin. So it is there. Um, it's kind of jammed up. You notice our bulletins have gotten longer uh, lately. Have you guys noticed that a little bit? <laughs> we, I'm trying to incorporate a lot of readings uh, and confessions and such to get everybody involved in worship because that's really what worship is about. It's not about one or two people or a band or anything like that at all. We know that. It's all about God, but it's getting every one of us involved in doing uh, our worship and vocally saying that. It is a privilege to do that. Anyway... This section, I think, if interpreted correctly, and that's what we want to do, can be very helpful to us. We can understand what was happening in Corinth. We can kind of maybe escape from some of those problems that they had there back 2,000 years ago and maybe not reproduce that today. But uh, I think we'd have to say this is a very important topic to study, and this is going to be the key that we're going to lay out here for these uh, three chapters. And... uh, we know that as we look at it today, we realize there's been a, uh, an abuse of spiritual gifts in, in our time. I think it's been phenomenal, uh, all of the different things that have gone on that are just outlandish based upon some of these things right here that's just crazy. You, you have uh, lapping revivals and, and uh, slain in the spirit revivals and a lot of those things. What are those about? Is that, is that for us? What, what, are we supposed to... How are we supposed to comprehend that? What do we do with a guy like Benny Hinn? What do we do with uh, people like Kenneth Copeland that proclaim these things? Well, what we do is we test them by the Word of God. If it's true, that's what we want. If it's not true uh, with what they're doing, then we don't want it. Uh, TBN has been quite a promoter of some of these things in the last uh, 15, 20 years. Uh, bringing forth things that have been strange to the church for 2,000 years. Uh, so it's critical to understand what this is, not trying to bring any biases or trying to bring in biases, but what we want is we want what is vital to the church, what Paul, first of all, was saying to them, and then uh, how does that uh, bring that into our time. Gifts, spiritual gifts are huge in the church. They are very important. They are vital. Uh, the energy of these gifts come from the Holy Spirit. And to do any kind of ministry, we have to have spiritual gifts. And that's what Paul is going to uh, really bring forth here for us. Uh, the church is made up of people. And the people are given gifts. And they're all unique. We know about that. You have an arm. You have a leg. You have a foot. Uh, and all of those uh, analogies. Uh, The body is one of the greatest analogies of what the church is. There's a supernatural characteristic that has been given to God's people. And they're manifest in many different ways. Uh, Those spiritual gifts are very important. We've been given gifts by the Holy Spirit 
a supernatural endowment. I mean, it's coming from God. It's not anything that we have innate in us, but it's through Him. So we minister in this organism, in this body of Christ, by edifying the church. And that's really what the gifts are for. There's no other reason than to edify the rest of the body and then also to reach out to the lost world. We want to edify each other till we get to the unity of the faith completely into full maturity. Isn't that what we're after? And so when is full maturity? Well, probably uh, until Christ comes back. We'll be working at that. But supernatural spiritual gifts, uh, very important. And if you have the right use of them, that's a good thing. But if you have something that's really important and of value... Satan, who plays a key role in counterfeiting these spiritual gifts, he can take something so valuable and so good, and that's what he operates on. He's not going to take something that's not valuable. It's going to be something that's valuable. Can you imagine? Have you ever heard of it? I don't think I have. It's possible it could be. But have you ever heard of counterfeiting pennies? I mean, they don't waste the time to counterfeit pennies, right? And usually not even $1 bills or 5s or 10s. It's usually what? Big bills. 20s or maybe 100s. You counterfeit those and all of a sudden you've got some money. It's a value. So that's what you counterfeit. If Satan can take something so viable, which is very, very viable to the church, these spiritual gifts, and then counterfeit them, what's going to happen? Well, he's going to be able to get some things done uh, in the way that, uh, that he plans. And it's going to devalue what uh, really the, the gifts are to the church. Um, you can think of diamonds or rubies, great values like that. Gold or uh, jewelry. People try to counterfeit uh, diamonds, for instance. And sometimes you wonder if it's really real. It looks like it's really real. And you take it to a jeweler and you find out that all it's worth is 20 bucks. Nice looking, but it's really not a diamond. You know, So that's what he does. He's going to spend his time on things of value. Um, he knows that he can confuse people. He can make them misunderstand. And this is why we are going to take our time and we're going to look at this in a, in a biblical way and as we, we deal with the grammar, as we deal with the context, the historical context, that's how you interpret Scripture. One could read this and just take it out and, and make it say anything that you want. But there are rules of interpretation of Scripture. We call it hermeneutics. A big fancy word there. A theological term. A seminary word. But it really means to interpret it in the way that it is. And anybody can do that. It's just realize that who is the author? Who is he writing to? What's this whole letter about? What's this chapter about? How does it fit in with what Paul has already talked about? And if we take that and really see what Paul had the meaning of, then we can start to understand how it works with us. Uh, it's a, a much maligned doctrine today, I think spiritual gifts are. Uh, what are spiritual gifts? That's some of the, the answers we're going to get in the next few weeks. What are, how many are there? Uh, are we all to have the same gifts? Uh, am I to seek certain gifts? Uh, what about uh, how, are, how do they operate today? Did any of them stop? Are they all going like they were then? Can they be counterfeited? I mentioned some of these things. But what's the most important gift? We can go on and on with all the questions. They are important questions. And they are values. So that's the kind of things we're going to get with as we go through that in uh, this uh, next section. We, we have to remember, any time that we get into any text, that how does it fit into the flow of the rest of the book? And so far as we've looked in 1 Corinthians... It's not a church that we'd want to emulate. We don't want to take this as a model of a church that we want to be like. Would you guys say that? <laughs> Would you agree with that? And so, and that's why I keep coming up with this thought. Why are there churches actually that are called themselves the Corinthian church? Have they read the book? The book of or, you know, the first Corinthians? I wouldn't want to call my name that. Um, but if, if they do and, and they abide by God's Word, that's okay. But uh, the, the message here is really a reproof, a reproof to them. 
because they had so many problems. Have we seen some of the problems in here already? Yes, absolutely. Chapter after chapter after chapter. It was a church that was much troubled in many different areas. And last week we just finished the section that dealt with the Lord's Supper. And they certainly took that wrong. And people were even becoming drunk at the Lord's Supper. They were not uh, being loving by giving food to the people who were hungry. And they would shut them out. That was the issue that we just dealt with. So you know what? I wouldn't want to base a certain doctrine off of this section without first of all knowing what Corinth is about, what Paul is writing about. And after we've seen this for weeks and weeks and weeks and months, we realize that uh, Paul is addressing some issues and he's addressing it here again. If they abuse the Lord's Supper, how were they abusing the spiritual gifts? And they were in, in such a big way. So anyway, uh, that happened there. The context is so important. What, what have they done so far? Well, they had divisions over leaders, over philosophy, over human wisdom. They actually had schisms and divisions in that church. Can you imagine that? Divisions in a church? That doesn't happen, does it? Well, of course it does. It's happened all throughout uh, church history, especially within the, uh, the time of the Reformation. And you had a lot of different areas go. And to this day, we have deno- countless denominations. And, uh, but we know that they had it right there in, within the church. They were acting carnal. As in chapter 3, they were sexually perverted in in some areas there. In chapter uh, 5, I believe, they were worldly. They were suing each other, as we saw in chapter 6. They had no discipline. They had marital conflict. All sorts of questions about marriage, didn't they? Idolatry, selfishness, pride. Uh, We got into chapter 11. We saw the insubordination of, of women. Uh, There was abuse of the Lord's Supper. And now after all of this, it's this perversion of spiritual gifts. And that's where we're at as we move into chapter 12. They were very poor in their understanding. And they were irresponsible in the way that they used these gifts. Now, what we're going to do is, is take a look at what was happening in the Corinthian church and how we can learn from them and not take on the same mistakes that they had. We're going to read three verses today, so I'm going to ask you to uh, stand in honor of God's Word, and we will read that. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank You. Thank You for Your Word. It's very precious. All throughout this particular book, we know there have been controversies and, and it takes in every avenue of our own lives, uh, the own, our own culture. Um, it has uh, happened in our society and also right in the church, many of these same things. And we pray that we can, we can learn from this and understand that we too sin. And we have misunderstandings about who you are and we're trying to conform more and more through the person of Christ by your Holy Spirit. It's all His power. We thank you for that as we understand, try to understand a little bit more what your truth is. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. You can be seated. And let's uh, actually, let's just stand for the whole message because I have to. <laughs> you guys laugh. <laughs> Hey, remember Nehemiah 8? I could nail that one on you. Remember that? The whole congregation stood for what? Half the day? <laughs> we'll try that a little bit. Anyway, verse 1. And I know you're saying, when is that going to be? I'll make sure that I've got something to do that. Verse 1. Now concerning. And that's usually where we start with, right? First two words. Now concerning spiritual gifts. There we go. Spiritual gifts. Brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. Hey, we don't want to be ignorant, do we? Alright. He has something to inform us with here. So he's going to do that. Uh, now concerning. He has said that before. Uh, he's, he's shifting to a different topic. But it's still related to where he's at. If you'll go back to chapter 11, verse 18, he says, For first of all, 
When you come together as a church, I heard there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Yeah, I know. It's happening. That's what he's saying. For first of all, when you come together. Now he takes this. Now, after I have discussed the Lord's Supper, such a beautiful thing, a beautiful diamond that was found in the mud and the muck and the mire of the sin of what was going on in Corinth with the Lord's Supper, he pulls out what the truth of the Lord's Supper is. They had perverted that. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, here's what I know what is going on in Corinth. Okay, does that make sense? They were abusing it. Uh, and now, now the next thing is spiritual gifts. The word gifts there is in italics probably in your Bibles. Almost all your Bibles will probably have italics. And that means in the original Greek, and I'm not going to try to get too technical, but it means gifts is really not there. But don't worry. Because of the context, we know that that's what he's talking about. And that's why gifts is going to be mentioned. And that's why it's put in italics. The word is actually spirituals. And if we said that, we would think of some kind of a hymn book or something, wouldn't we? That had spirituals in it. But uh, the word is pneumaticos. Pneuma, dealing with spirit. We think of the Holy Spirit. Uh, pneuma, pneumaticals. Uh, it's, it's spiritualities or spiritual things. And the reason we can say that is if you look in chapter 12, verse 4, we know why it is gifts. And so that word in italics is okay to put there. And it's good. I'm glad it is. Otherwise, it would cause really kind of friction between what we're trying to understand. It wouldn't make any sense, right? Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. So he uses the word gifts there. Move on to verse 9. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit. Their gifts, again. Verse 28. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administration, varieties of tongues, and on and on. Gifts, again, verse 30 and 31, do all have gifts of healings, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. Uh, So, I don't have to prove that anymore, right? Uh, Spirituals, here, uh, gifts, we move on. Um, Paul wants them to have a clear understanding. Now concerning this, I don't want you to be ignorant of. I want you to know. Uh, If they're ignorant, it means they are agnoes, or uh, English word agnostic. They were agnostic. They didn't know what was true, really. I don't want you to remain ignorant or what is not uh, true with what you're doing. It means to not know. And so that's how we get our word agnostic. Uh, look in Romans 1.13. Paul uses this kind of thought frequently. Romans 1.13. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have often planned to come to you. I, I want you to know this. I don't want you to be ignorant of or unaware of. Uh, chapter 11 of Romans, verse 25. I'm not going to give you a lot of verses on this. Uh, We want to turn this also into an application. but He says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come. I want you to be ignorant about what I'm talking about, uh, about Israel is concerned. So he uses that, uses it in a lot of other places. And, um, Paul's teaching here is crucial. He's saying you must be very well informed. You must know what this has to say. Now, we get into uh, the aspect about the reason for gifts. We understand that He wants us to know about it. All the gifts, and we can say this safely, are given to edify the rest of the body of Christ. They are given so that we would be, guess what? Christ-like. Did you know that Christ had all those gifts? I mean, in the sense that you know He... He is the embodiment of that. He is in us. He resides in us. We have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We are empowered to be Christ-like to others. We have all of that that we need. Look in Ephesians 4. 
And on on our Monday night studies, we spent quite a bit of time on that section dealing with the church. And that's a section dealing with gifts too. And in in that section, it's dealing with the teaching kind of gifts that were given to apostles, prophets, and then pastors, teachers, uh, evangelists. And and so that is the uh, establishment, the foundation of the church. Those particular gifts. So when you have this speaking gifts out, then it can edify the rest of the body so they can bring others closer to the Lord. Pick it up in verse 11, chapter 4. And He gave Himself some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. What for? Well, for the equipping of the saints. That's what the pastors would do. Equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That is a mouthful there, isn't it? But it reaches out to the point of being mature in Christ, to the very fullness of Christ, so that people be equipped. So the Lord's primary channel, really, of making Christians and giving gifts to them, we, we are actually, in a sense, and don't get me wrong here, and I'm, this is not New Age teaching, but we are in that sense, we are Christ in the world. I know that sounds really strange, but um, let me rephrase that. The body of Christ is the church, right? He is the head. The head is in heaven. But His body works today, no matter how much friction and sometimes how bad the church may look and feel, his body is here on earth. That's where His glory is at. Christ resides in the church. And when we say the church, we're talking about the true believers ultimately. Uh, really. And He's enabled us to do the work of Christ right here. Uh, that's, uh, that's an unbelievable, incredible assignment that we've been given. We are to manifest who Jesus is before... Others in Christ and the lost world. Have you thought about that recently? You know, I look at that. And I go, this, this is incredible. I understand the theology of it, but I just don't see how that that can work. Christ is here. Uh, at one time, there was a temple or a tabernacle and a temple. That was the glory of God residing there. Then Christ came in the flesh, incarnate, um, lived taught the Word of God here, and He was also, He was really Christ. He was really what it was all about. The truth was embodied in Him. Then He left, sent the Holy Spirit, and now He uh, resides in the church with these gifts. That's overwhelming. That su- it, it can only work supernaturally. Uh, what an expression that we are to do in, in the church. We live here on earth through the power of the Spirit, working through the gifted ones. If you're a Christian, you are gifted. Everybody has that, is that spiritual snowflake. And uh, God is supernaturally working through it. Now, that's a little bit about true spiritual gifts, and we'll probably be getting into that more as, as time goes on and we develop this. But now, what Paul has to introduce first is the problem. We know there are spiritual gifts. We could move right on into that, but until we get this foundation, we can't go any further. And Paul says, there are counterfeits of the spiritual gifts. There are counterfeits, and he reminds them of where they came from. And they may be Christians now, but he says, you were pagans at one time. And what does he mean by that? Well, we see it in verse 2. You know that you were Gentiles. Or the word is ethne. E-T-H-N-E. Or you think of what? Ethnic. Gentiles. Jews. To the Jews, there were only two kinds of people. Jews, non-Jews. You were ethnic. Ethne. You were Gentile if you were not a Jew. And that's it. But you become a Christian and you realize that, oh, now there is that body of Christ where... Pagans are considered to be any people that are not, what? Christians. Look in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 5, and he will use that word. 
4 or 5. And he's saying, here's the will of God, abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own... Uh, oh, wait. Yeah, own vessel and sanctification on it. Verse 5. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. It's any people who don't know God, have a relationship with God. These are ethne. Uh, that would be the word for Gentiles there. Ethne. Ethnic. One of the chief characteristics of pagan religions is what? Idolatry. If they don't know Christ, it's idolatry. And of course, that can even work in the body of Christ. If it's not about Christ, it's idolatry. Worshiping God in, in um, the wrong way can be what? Idolatry. And we saw that in, when you think of the Ten Commandments. and I think... Uh, Zach, whenever he addressed that issue there about the holiness of God's uh, name and and uh, all about who He is, uh, you think it right off the bat in the first uh, two commandments. Well, anyway, what we're going to do is look a little bit. I'm going to take a little bit of time on this. Some of you might have heard of this, and sometimes it might to some people it might be the first time you've heard of this, or you can say, "Well, I've heard of it. I've, I remember history in school and such." The pagan cults of Greece, and then Rome. Paul is writing in a Roman world. The pagan cults were called mystery religions. And really, it was to learn about the great mysteries. Not everybody else can learn these things. Now, in Christianity, we have no secrets to hide. We don't have the mysteries in the sense that we're holding it from people until they get to a certain degree. We, we will show everything that we know right off the bat. If, if, whatever question they give, we want to give. Now, there are, there's depth to things that people are not going to grab yet. We must be patient. But the mystery religions is going from one degree to another. I think of uh, the Masonic Lodge, and they have different degrees where they learn the secret name of God, the secret name of the Masonic Lodge. You think of Abaddon and Job, Baalon and Baal. Osiris, their gods, and those are secrets. Those are mysteries. And, and if you take it back far enough, you could probably see that uh, the Masons were based right out of all those mystery religions that go back to where we're going to talk about. Now, uh, if you turn to Revelation chapter 17, you get this mystery that God reveals here that is a, kind of a mystery of the ages. And in verse 1, he says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Okay, to save time, you can read this for homework later if you want to. Go to verse 5, though. This is the harlot. And on her forehead a name was written, and I have capital letters here in my Bible. You probably do too. Mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. This is an organized false religion that's been here since the Tower of Babel. And there it's mentioned here. The Babylon, the mother of harlots. It's an organized pagan religion when you can take the descendants that go all the way back to, if you remember, there was Noah and one of his sons was Ham. And it's considered to be, these are descendants of Ham who built this great monument. There was Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But this monument, this Tower of Babel was to reach into the heavens. It was a, a tall building. There's no way it could reach into the clouds. We know that. But there was something mysterious about this. This is how they were going to connect with the great gods of the universe. Nimrod is the one who started this false religion. And this is really man's first organized counterfeit religion of all the religions outside of what the truth is. And so it spawned from there. So let's go back to Genesis 10. You can get a lot of foundation when you go back to Genesis, can't you? And here we know this is where the people were spread out. But in Genesis 10, verse 9, uh, let's 
take it at verse 8. Cush begot Nimrod. Of course, Cush comes from Ham there. Cush begot Nimrod, and he began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was, look at this, Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. So there's Nimrod. He starts a kingdom. It's at Babel. Uh, drop down to, uh, go to chapter 11, just for saving time. In, in verse 4, we know in, in verse 3 they said, Come, uh, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, they had asphalt for mortar. This is this great building that they're, they're putting up out there in Shinar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Are you catching what's happening there? It's not about God. It's about themselves. Lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now at this time you have all the people in one basic area. They all speak the same language. They're all in one area. It's kind of like today where we have internet and you can speak to anybody all over the world and you don't even have to know their language. It's fascinating on Facebook, talking to people in uh, whether it be uh, Russia, uh, Africa, um, people I have no idea who they are, but uh, I understand that they are Christians. It's interesting some of the, the thoughts that they put forth on there. It's incredible. And you say, hey, these are brothers and sisters in Christ. This is beautiful. But I'm speaking a language that they don't know and vice versa. Or they might know English, but I don't know what they're doing. But they convert it and I understand it. Uh, we have become almost one world. <laughs> but they were one world. And God had already told people to be spread out and be fruitful and multiply and, and move on. Well, these religions that came out of this kind of thought we read down through verse 8, right? No, we didn't. Okay. Let's, let's read to uh, at verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one. And they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us, that's the triune God, go down and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Now, all these years, as these people scattered, they took that religion and that thought that they had and just planted it in different wherever they wound up going to. They got so upset with each other they couldn't understand. Some guy is speaking one language is what? I don't understand. What's the deal? What's the problem? Well, they're speaking something different too. And this guy over here, so the ones that spoke the same went that particular family or whatever went out to different areas. And so they take these, this kind of religious thought with them and it dominated the culture. It dominated the Western, Western culture for so long. We still see it today. We see remnants in Europe. We also see it in the Roman Catholic Church. If we went into great detail on that, it's amazing to see how many things have evolved into the Roman Catholic Church that were paganistic and from this great mystery Babylon uh, but all the religions took in all those kind of things. Uh, we want to spend a little time on this just for uh, at least uh, a few moments so we can get a handle on this and un- understand it a little bit more. Revelation 17, which is where we kind of base this out of, it's, it's a composite form of world religions coming together. Mystery. Babylon the Great. The mother of harlots. The mysterious religions. They came out of Babylon. All false religions go back to Babylon and when it comes together at the end, which as it's speaking here, it's been coming, coming to its culmination all this time. When it comes to the very time that Christ comes back, which is really we're in that very area there in, in Revelation, when He comes back 
to earth. Babylon is the mother of all false systems. It spread to all the world. You remember Nimrod. That's a biblical term. That, that name was in there in Genesis, um, we think of 10, uh, 11 there in that area. He started a network of false religions. Wherever you go in the world, you're going to see similarity in all these Eastern religions, even though they say that their one is different than another, whether it be Hinduism, whether it be Buddhism, um, whatever you, you want to pick. You know, uh, there have been some people called religion of the month club. They will jump from one religion to another, searching for truth. And so they tried them all. People do that. But everywhere you go, you'll find different names for their gods, cultural names, but it's interesting. Whether they are different or not, it doesn't really matter. They're actually standing for the same gods. Nimrod had a wife by the name of Semiramis. And Semiramis was really the one who would be considered the great first high priestess of this Tower of Babel religion. Are you guys staying with me so far? Okay. What she is, is she's the founder of all these religions. She's part of this. Whenever God confused the people, we know they got spread about, they took their languages out there, they take that religion. If you would go to Assyria, you might hear the word Ishtar. If you go to Phoenicia, uh, there is a goddess there by the name of Ashtaroth. In Egypt, she would have been known as Isis. And if you go to Greece, Aphrodite. Now we're, we're kind of teaching mythology here in a sense, aren't we? Well, mythology, it's kind of interesting that you have that term because myth is something that is really not true, isn't it? But it's amazing how these stories develop and through these false religions, we know that uh, when Israel came to the uh, land of Canaan or that promised land, they ran into all sorts of different kind of gods there. We think of the Baal, for instance. They'd already seen uh, Isis, uh, um, Horus, and Seth, Seb, I think, in, in Egypt, the different gods they had, the triune gods. If you go to Rome, you would see a goddess by the name of Venus. Uh, think of Rome today, think of the Roman Catholic Church, and we, that's where we're heading to talk about in a moment. But all those really are from Semiramis. Those female names, it's Semiramis, different language, so they change it to that. Semiramis had a son by the name of Tammuz. And if you were to go to Ezekiel chapter 8, I believe it is, you'll see that the women were weeping for Tammuz for how long? Forty days. Guess where Lent came from? For forty days before the resurrection of the Lord. That was in conjunction with the, the time period. And as the Roman Catholic Church developed, they took in things from the pagans to introduce into Christianity so that those people would be familiar with their holy days. And so it slid right in. And so you have something that's called Lent. Is it wrong to have a time where you think about the Lord for 40 days? I'm not trying to be legalistic. I'm not saying, hey, if Lent is important to you, okay. But you, you can see some of the history of some of the terms and some of the things that have happened in the church. And go, where did that come from? Well, chances are, if it's not Scripture, it could have come from some of these things we're talking about. Did you know how Tammuz was conceived? Supernaturally. He was conceived by a sunbeam. And I know you're thinking, that's ridiculous. Well, if, if you're a Christian, you tell people that Jesus was, was born and, and conceived by a virgin, by the Holy Spirit. Right? Now, to some people, that may sound really strange. Yeah, right, right? To us, it is a basic fundamental of the faith. If you don't believe in that virgin birth, you don't believe in Christianity. You don't believe in the Christ that we believe in. So it's very important to us. Um, we have uh, facts. We have Scripture. We have manuscripts to prove that. And uh, I mean, at least that's, that's what's important to us. We know that that is something that has been historically uh, believed through the church. Uh, this Tammuz actually uh, later on was killed by a boar and he was raised back to death. And so those 40 days of weeping, all of a sudden he came back to life, Tammuz did, and it was a resurrection. Does that sound close to what Christianity was to be about later on? And we know it is about now. Well, there are things that parallel what we believe to be true. But different names and a different way of believing what it was 
was a mythological, mystical counterfeit from Satan. Satan works this Babylon the Great. He is the father of lies. He's the father of all these religions, when you really think about it. Um, But there was this Tammuz, and he was known as the god of the underworld. When the Jews run into this situation, we see it in Scripture and and through uh, history. There was Baal, of course. We also think of Osiris, the Egyptian god. Eros, a Greek god. Cupid, right? And so that is what Tammuz was named in different areas of the world. Same guy, though. Same religion happened here. When Romanism, and that's the Roman Catholic Church, started to spread then, it just adapted these. It adapted the born-again thought uh, through water baptism, through baptismal regeneration. That's because the pagans believed that. You would be considered to be born again in their beliefs when you would be baptized as a baby. Uh, the pagan religions also believed in pilgrimages, going to uh, holy cities. They paid penance for their sins. Okay, they paid that for forgiveness of sins. That's how they would get that. They also believed in sacrificial systems and animal sacrifices, which we know that the Jewish people were to do that. Israel did that. That was all a picture of Christ, but they did these kind of sacrifices. So close to what the true religion is, but so far. They had feasts. They had fasts. They had offerings. They had confessions. Those things sound familiar to the church, doesn't it? The mystical experiences. If you were to look back into our passage now in 1 Corinthians, it says, You know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols, however you were led. I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus Christ. I'll get to that in a moment. What they were having were mystical experiences in these religions. Here is what they really aimed at where they would have some kind of mystical communion with their gods. I'm talking about a real communion with them. Now, we've already talked about communion in chapter 11, right? It's funny that this chapter 12, which was not a chapter 12 originally, it helps us turn to Scriptures in the Bible. But this chapter 12 is really... Uh, concluding what chapter 11 is about. It's hooked on with that. It doesn't have to be divided from it. They were taking this communion into a sense that uh, it would get them into a euphoric feeling where they would ultimately be linked with their God. And it would include, guess what? Drunkenness. You remember in chapter 11? Some of them were getting drunk. There were whirling dances. There were incenses going on. Hmm. There were chants and even out-of-the-body uh, trances that people would get into. You remember the, the New Age teaching way back when, and a lot of this stuff uh, is really not new. It's, it's old. It's this right here. Their idea was to empty themselves. That's the whole idea of all these Eastern religions. Because... What kind of problem do we have as people on the world? We know as Christians, it's called sin. But these religions would rather not call it sin. It's just, uh, your problem is that, uh, I've heard it said, you're, you're lazy. You just don't realize that you are God. Or are little gods. So therefore, what you have to do is empty yourself where you get into this state of nothingness. Where you can escape all the pain, all the things that go wrong in life, you can escape that, and you can go into nirvana. And that's the ultimate. In Buddhism, nirvana, what's that mean? You're not here. You don't exist anymore. And neither does your sin or your pain or anything else. Nothingness. That's where they're trying to get to. That's the ultimate. Can you believe that? And 
Some of them believe that you'll have to die and then live again as another person. Or you might have to go be an animal or maybe even an insect if you're really bad on this earth. And eventually you'll get it right to where you get up to a person that recognizes that you have godhood. And when you get to that, you can escape out of this. And you know the yogas? And as they sit there all holy looking with their arms crossed and their legs crossed and they're reaching in nirvana, they reach that state. And they're all shooting for that. It's some kind of mystical, ineffable kind of condition where the normal functions of personality kind of go away. Now, when the personality becomes abnormal and you have emptied yourself, you've indulged in orgies, you've indulged in whatever drugs it takes, uh, alcohol, you go into this neutral state where the emotions take over. Now get that. Christians operate on fact first. It's always doctrine first. Then faith in that doctrine. Faith in God's Word. Then come the feelings. Fact, faith, and feelings. What happens if you take the fact out and the faith and you just say, you come to feelings and you let that control you. You have become empty. No thinking is there. Now you're in a euphoric state where anything can come in. And I've always thought of it as an open window. Yeah, we are to be open to truth but make sure the screen is up. You know what I'm talking about? If you open up the screen, you're going to let anything and everything fly in there and now your feelings will just take in everything and you reach this ecstasy or this great emotion and it takes certain things to help you get into that. So you have the whirling dance, uh, uh, dances, uh, certain physical stimuli, general objects, you have stirring music, you have inhalation of fumes, you have revivalistic, uh, contagious emotions, and it's kind of a mob frenzy. And it takes over without what the statement of fact is here. Hey, is it cool in here? I'm seeing several having to put jackets on. If if we are, we can definitely bring that heat up. Um, they're listed above an ordinary experience. It's an exhilarating condition to be in. And so with that frenzy, this ecstasy that everybody is looking for in these religions, they go into all sorts of different responses, in trances. And of course, like I, like I was saying, like the, those gurus, or you think of the, the Buddhist... Uh, and all of this, it goes back to your, your Baal worship. They even killed their children, sacrificed them. That was the emotions that got in there. How can people do that, right? You see it today. And uh, one of them is called being slain in the Spirit. And you look in the Scripture and you say, where is that at? If one is supposed to be, then I want to be. This is happening all over the place. You can see it on television. You hear it. You read it in the books and everything. And, and you know of somebody that's been slain in the Spirit. And they'll tell you that. Oh, we had all these slain in the spirits, And everybody was just going back and they were losing it. What has happened is they've lost track of what truth is. Jesus never ever taught that. Nowhere in the epistles. Nowhere in Revelation we see that. Except John was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And whenever he saw Christ, he fell as a dead man, as if he was dead. And so though based upon that, what it was, he was so frightened by seeing Jesus Christ right there in front of him, uh, slain in the Spirit. You go flat out into a trance when this happens. You can say, well, how does that always happen with everybody that's there? They seem to be doing that. And they line up and they, they fall back and have somebody catch them. Some people are just acting bizarre. Um, some people actually are being led demonically or there's suggestions, hey, if everybody else is doing it, I'll do it and I'll just let it go. Um, this is kind of the things you see. You see, and we've always heard in some places you have the people's running up and down the aisles. They'll be screaming and yelling. Some people get stuck to the floor and they can't get off of the floor. They'll be there for three or four days. And that's supposed to be a positive thing. 
Where? In Scripture. This is scary to me. It's, I, I think it's either demonic or people are doing this just to make, make them look how spiritual they are. But do they know anything about the truth of the Word of God? This is what Satan can do. And I'm talking counterfeit like this can really wrangle people to uh, a misunderstanding of, of who God is. The whole idea is to have a communion with the spirits. It's a euphoria. It gets into a good feeling. It's fantastic. They're communing with a deity. It's got to be God. Everybody else is doing this and this feeling is something else. You must be connected with God. Um, Going back into history, there was a guy who wrote some things about this. He says, uh, physically, the, the condition was one of anesthesia. Unconsciousness of pain or of anything hostile or disconcerting in the surroundings. Unconscious of pain. They don't feel it anymore. You say, well, what about all those healings that people have? You can get somebody into a sense, a trance, that they don't feel the pain. But it's interesting, if you go back and interview those people, that they will be feeling that pain the next day. They come out of that unconsciousness because of suggestion. And there's even hypnotism that can go on. But what happens when you have an unconsciousness of what's going on? What have you just done? You've taken the screen down and you're allowing anything and everything everything besides God's Word to come flying into your kind of feeling. And this euphoric thought. It's to be lifted above reality, above senses, to have this beatific vision of God and oh I'm seeing God like I've never seen before and I felt Him and and Christ is right here it's so close and that's ecstasy and also there's enthusiasm that they would call uh, enthusiasm we think when somebody gets excited and and sharing I'm enthusiastic about God's Word is there anything wrong with that? no but if I take it to a different degree what they meant is a, a communion accompanying confusion with ecstasy under uh, enthusiasm, where there were things like uh, magical formulas, there were prophecies, soothsaying, you know, revelations, dreams and visions, utterances of the deity. This was in those world religions. That's called enthusiasm there. So that's a negative thought of what enthusiasm is. All forms of enthusiasm and ecstasies was happening uh, in there. Okay, what's happening in Corinth? What is Paul addressing? Knowing that this was part of the culture. This is what they grew up with. This is what they knew. They had the great temple. The Acro-Corinth and, and uh, the, the prostitution and all the things that went with that. These Corinthians then become believers and they have all this junk on the side. It's still there. And some people are convinced that you still can do that only call it Christianity. It was there were bizarre behaviors going on there. Their their worship was ecstatic, full of emotions, as it is stated historically, and we can see it right here in Scripture. And uh, there was not order, but there was chaos. Okay, this is all going to be seen uh, as we uh, enter into this section, twelve through fourteen. Um, let's say. You're in Corinth. The first church of Corinth. And you have your wife there and says, Wife, let's go to church today. Let's attend the first church of Corinth. Let's go. So you go. You arrive there. All the rich people are there, but the poor people aren't there yet. And they've been there an hour and they have finished their love feast. And then some other people come in and they find out there's no food there. The rich are over there eating the rest of the remainder of the food. And you have some other people sitting over there and they're bombed. They're stoned. They're drunk. Now, they're having a terrific time at this place called the First Church of Corinth. And then the, the poor people are starting to think bad about the other people and say, what kind of people are these? You know, these, these dirty people. They don't even uh, you know, leave any food for us. And you start to begin, what kind, of, what kind of church is this? And the drunks are loud and they're obnoxious and people are speaking out of order. And now it's time for the Lord's Supper, somebody introduces. And they begin to abuse that. That's, we've already seen like chapter 11. It turns into a mockery. This is incredible what was going on. They were like out of their minds. 
They were being led astray at one time. Verse 2, You know that you were Gentiles carried away to the dumb idols. You were in to those kind of religions. That's what you once did. You were out of control. You, uh, the word led astray is the thought of being taken away by guards to court, to jail, or to your death. They were taken in by the religions, the dumb idols. They were led by these kind of things. They were dominated by that. And in the church here, everything was becoming to begin out of control. They were using their gifts. Uh, They were doing all the things that the pagans had done once they had done. And they were bragging. They were into pride and what they knew. And they had their mysteries also. They were out of control. The dumb idols is aphanos. Phon, phone is where we get our English word which means to hear. Ah means no. Uh, dumb, dumb idols are speechless. They can't hear. They can't talk. They're without voice. Phone means that. Uh, being able to speak. Without that. No idol can respond to our needs, can they? Because they're not real. Although there's, there is the sense of uh, this is a false idolatry. Uh, verse 3, and getting ready to close with this. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. What's going on here? Well, the Corinthians had all the gifts. They misused them, abused them. And Satan loves to spend time in a church where he can counterfeit and people take it in. There's a negative test. And the test is this. If you have anybody in your church saying Jesus is accursed, what do you do with that? That means condemned. Jesus is condemned. If you go back to Deuteronomy 21-23, anybody put on a tree to be hung is to be considered accursed. So you might have Jews in there saying that. It means to condemn Jesus' nature, His Word. They have another Jesus. They have fallen into some kind of ecstasy and enthusiasm that they don't even hear somebody over here saying, Jesus is accursed. Because they're into all this other stuff. Oh, that's okay. That's just fine. That's the, the, the Holy Spirit revealed that to him. Jesus was cursed because he was crucified in the sense of uh, he had to take on our sin, as it speaks in Galatians. But how could they be so confused in cursing the Lord? It was definitely a carryover from the frenzy that they had, the ecstasy, and some people would say, well, that's the Holy Spirit. Jesus is anathema. Jesus is anathema. Boy, Satan was really operating there. Listen. This, this is unbelievable. But there was Gnosticism that was going on that was pre-Gnosticism. It really carries on into the next century. But it kind of started there with saying Jesus is His humanity, Christ is His deity, and Gnosticism doesn't believe that the spiritual is really connected with the, uh, the human because that becomes corrupted then, so it's a negative thing. At the moment of... Um, at one moment, the Spirit of God came into a man and He stayed with him until the end of his life, until he was crucified. The Holy Spirit, then before the death, then took Himself back to heaven. And so Jesus then is a man again. Just man. Not God. That's their beliefs. That is the introduction to Gnosticism. So when they say Jesus is accursed, they're saying Jesus was the human man and He really wasn't God because God can't be man. That's why 1 John was written. If you deny that Jesus is God, this man in the flesh is God, then you are not a Christian. Right? If you can't confess that. Well, they were confessing this this other thing. And a supernatural Christ only appeared to be the natural Jesus, but He really wasn't. So there is what they were saying. Some of them were so ecstatic and they were saying, this human Jesus, He was accursed. His Spirit went on. He was the, the God. The God-man was not crucified. Just that man was. And He was accursed. So you see what is going on there? That's why they were, they were saying it and getting away with it. And Paul says, because of all these things that they are doing, that's why they're saying that. 
And then he says this, and here's the positive test. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is God. When you say Lord, you're saying kurios, Adonai, sovereign authority. We're saying rulership. And what a true, a, a, a true Christian says is that Christ is the test of your confession. Is He man? Is He God? Do, do you obey His commands? Is He Lord truly? We affirm who He is. And there were confessions. We don't have time to go to that. But we know in John 20, 28, what did um, um, Thomas, doubting Thomas, say? Thou art the Christ. or uh, You are Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And we know that throughout the Roman world then Christians would say Jesus is Lord. If you would not say uh, Jesus, uh, uh, Caesar is Lord, then if you didn't retract from that, it could mean your death, right? And so this is uh, the kind of thought that we have here. But the Holy Spirit is the one who is going to have anybody say that if we're really true, that Jesus is Lord of my life. We're only able to do that because God has come in and revealed that to us. Um, a Gnostic would be confessing that Christ is Lord, but not Jesus as Lord. So do you see? Anybody speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed? They can't, they can't do that. Jesus. He says, but no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You have been revealed that by the Holy Spirit, by God Himself. That introduces the section of spiritual gifts. And that was a long way to go around. I know I had a lot of teaching aspects in there, but I hope there's some things there that can help us as we now go into spiritual gifts, which will be very important in putting it into our own lives because this is how we function. But if we function wrongly with a very understanding and the basis gone, what was happening in Corinth, and they had misunderstandings and they were wanting other gifts that other people had, and we see all the abuse that went on. Same thing can happen today. Let's pray and let's get ready for our Lord's Supper.